to break up everything. I, we may just dispense with a class and just enjoy fellowship with one another. What, right, Jim, can you hear me? <laughs> I looked over here just a moment ago, and I thought, well, I've done vacated that one over there, so people filling in. <clears throat> it's good to have you with us today as we begin the study of the Word of God. We're so thankful that you're with us. All right. It's good to see J.C. with us this morning. You told me you're going to be here. Well, we're thankful. We're thankful. I saw you up there at the hospital. I didn't know where you'd make it home or not. It's good, good to have you with us today. Blessing. Anyone have anyone we need to pray for this morning before we begin the classes? about that. That's Bradford. Okay. All right. Bear with me for a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful that we have the opportunity this morning to come and sit at your feet and learn from your word, Father, and we just thank you for blessing us with the word that reveals you to us and also, Father, helps us to be able to get to know you and to know that uh, you're the one that created us, not only created us, but recreated us in Christ. So we're so thankful that we have the opportunity today to look once again into your word, to understand, try to understand how that you are able to justify us as ungodly people, of sinners. And Father, we, we thank you for the great plan that you had from the foundation of the world to redeem us. We pray that today that you'd be with those people in Bradford who have uh, lost their, their grocery store, we pray that you'd, you would bless them, Father, and help them through this time. We pray that you'll forgive us of our sins and help us always to love you as you've loved us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, we're looking. I'd like for us to go back and look at Romans chapter 3, 21 through 26. See where we're coming from here. Uh, seeing how, trying to understand how God uh, can justify the ungodly or sinners and still be just in doing it. Uh, well, Romans chapter three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, 
whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we've already seen that we're justified by grace, by the grace of God. Without God's grace, how many people are going to be saved? Won't be anybody saved, will it? It's by the grace of God that we're saved. And we've seen, uh, saw last week that we're justified not only by God's grace, but uh, God's grace, I guess, was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, we're justified by His blood. And so that's what we're looking at. We saw last week where the blood of Christ redeems us. He points that out in verse uh, uh, 25, where it's through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus that we... Um, or in verse 24, that we can be justified. And so it's by, by the blood of Jesus Christ, and His blood redeemed us, bought us from the slavery of sin. We also see from the Bible that His blood atones our sins. Uh, Levit Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, It is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So without the blood of Christ, there could be no redemption. Without the blood of Christ, there could be no atonement. And that word atonement simply means a covering. It means to conceal or to hide. In Psalms chapter 32, verse 1, David pronounced and also is quoted in Romans chapter 4. Uh, David said, the man is blessed who sins are covered. And also David prayed in Psalm 51, hide your face from my sins. And so I think we need to understand that when God atones us by the blood of Jesus Christ, that our sins are covered over and God hides his face from our sins. I don't know about you, but that Somehow it thrills me knowing that God does not any longer see that sin in us if we're in Christ. Atonement is uh, one word, and somebody's divided it out at one mint, which means, I guess, when our sins are covered and His face is hidden from our sins, we are at one with God. In other words, we are reunited with God. What separated us from God? Sin separates us from God. But when we are atoned, God re reconciles us, brings us back into that relationship that we severed with Him when we sinned against Him. In verse 25, I'm going to bring out something maybe a little bit different. Sins were atoned and propitiated at the propitiatory or mercy seat. If you go back to the Old Testament, we're talking about the Day of Atonement, that great day once a year took place. It was at the seat, the mercy seat, or the propitiatory, where God was propitiated and other things happened. We'll talk about those later. 
But the word here in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the Greek word is helasteron. And now I don't know why they translated propitiation because that word comes from the Greek word helasmos. But, and I've, I've struggled over that word trying to reconcile how they could uh, translate it propitiation when it should have been translated propitiatory. Propitiatory is where propitiation takes place, right? So that also is a word that's translated in the New Testament. Only one other place it's used, cholesterol is used, and that's Hebrews 9 verse 5 where it's translated mercy seat. So, my conclusion is <laughs> that Jesus is the propitiatory. That is what? The mercy seat. And the more I look at this, the more I realize how much Christ means to me. And everything, you know, I look in the Old Testament, I look at the tabernacle, I look at the things that went on there, and everywhere I look, I see Jesus. Because without Jesus, where are we? We're lost. So, in 1 John 2, verse 2, and 1 John 4, verse 10, the word helasmos is used. He is the propitiation for our sins. But once again, as I said, helastron uh, is the mercy seat. The Holy Spirit, I believe, was very precise in choosing his words to reveal God's message to the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 3 through 5. And I don't believe he accidentally just put Helasteron in, in Romans chapter 3 rather than Helosmos, propitiation. I think he put it there for a reason, and that is to show that Jesus Christ is not only our propitiation for sins, but also the place where that takes place and that is at the propitiatory or the mercy seat where it all took place. Make any comments before we go on? You, am I, if, have I muddied up everything? Can you understand what I'm trying to say? I think you'll understand later on as we go on through it. So, Helesteron is the place where sins were atoned and propitiated, and it is a propitiatory or a mercy seat, and Helosmos is the action that took place at the propitiatory, that is, propitiation. And so, Helesteron is the place, and atonement and propitiation are the acts. And Christ is declared to be both the mercy seat and propitiation for our sins. And these usages of words show that Christ has for us the same functions as the mercy seat had for Israel. The mercy seat was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle that was located in the most holy place. If you know, if you've done any studying about the tabernacle and everything that was in it. And the tabernacle 
and the sacrificial system under the law of Moses were types, symbols, copies, shadows of the substance that is the heavenly things to come. Turn with me to the book of Rome, I mean book of Hebrews for a moment. Let's just look at this. Hebrews chapter 8, 9, 10. Talk about this. Hebrews chapter 8, first of all. Verse 4. If he were on earth, that's if uh, Christ was still on the earth, he would not be a priest because the law was still in effect when this was written and there still were priests serving. It says, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, those things under the law, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, all those things were types of the heavenly things that were to come, that we experienced, those heavenly things that God had planned. Romans, I mean, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even if the, even the first covenant had uh, ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, which was the lampstand, the table, showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden sitter, the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, and which were the golden spot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. There's that word, hilasteron. That's used in Romans chapter 3. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. <clears throat> Going down to verse 9. <clears throat> it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. So once again he uses that word symbolic that uh, they stood for. of Something that is was coming something that is real or substance. Verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9. According to the law, most th all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And then in 10, 1 through 4, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For them uh, they would not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have had no a more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So it was at the mercy seat where atonement was made once a year. It's on the seventh month, the tenth day of the month, and it was made for all the sins of all the people that were committed that, that year. So every year, the day of atonement was observed. And it was there that God appeared in the cloud above the mercy seat between the two cherubim. 
the Shekinah, the glory of God, appeared above that mercy seat. And the cherubim, their wings stretched out, touching one another, and their faces were facing her, down on the mercy seat, wasn't it? And I really, we'll see later on, I think, where we'll see the angels were looking into that mercy seat, trying to find out exactly what was to come, what was to transpire in God's great plan. But on the day of the, the uh, on the day of the uh, day of atonement, the high priest he entered the most holy place and sprinkled the blood of the vicarious sacrifice seven times on before the mercy seat. He first of all went in with the blood of bull and atoned his own sins. He went in there and sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat seven times, came back out. Then he took the blood of the goat, the goat, the sacrificial goat, and went in and did the same thing at the mercy seat for the sins of the people. So it was at the mercy seat where atonement took place, where propitiation took place. And so it was the blood, it was the blood that atoned. It was the blood that atoned his sins and the sins of the people because all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, what it did was it signified that the perfect sacrifice had died in their stead and atoned their sins. Leviticus 17, verse 11, Hebrews 9, verse 22. And on that day, the people were commanded to afflict their souls. They were to come before the tabernacle with humble and penitent hearts. It was a day of fasting, of contrition, of weeping, of sorrow for sin, of confession, reformation, and returning to God. So it was a solemn day. It was a day where they, when they came with that kind of an attitude, that symbolically symbolically, their sins were atoned. Didn't really atone it, did it? Blood of bulls and can't do that, right? So symbolically what was taking place, though, was that God was meeting with them through the person of the high priest as he went in with that blood. And that blood was what redeemed them from their slavery or the bondage of sin. That blood atoned them, propitiated their sins, and so symbolically what was happening was that God was meeting them there through the blood of the sacrificial lamb, the lamb taking their place instead of them, dying in their stead. And as a result, symbolically their sins were atoned and taken away. But as we said, and we read in, Rome, in Hebrews chapter 10, it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to atone their sins. And so those sacrifices served as a reminder of sins committed every year. The question is, what were they reminded of? <laughs> I think they were reminded of several things on that day. First of all, they were reminded that they were guilty of sin, weren't they? 
That was a reminder to them that they were sinners, they were guilty, and what's the punishment? <laughs> their sins reminded them that their sins had separated them from God, Isaiah 59, verse 2. And the consequences of those sins were what? Death. Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall die. God had said in the beginning, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely what? Die. And so they were reminded of that. And they were reminded that sin must be atoned in order to be justified and reconciled to God. They realized there had to be a sacrifice that that their sins had to be atoned, they had to be covered. God's face had to be hidden from them, their sins, in order for them to be right with God. And so, there was the atonement on the day of atonement. The sacrifice was made. The blood was shed. The blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat, symbolizing that Death had taken place in their stead. And it wasn't just the death of anything. It had to be a perfect sacrifice, right? Signifying that the one that was slain, that one had to be able to be qualified to take the sins of the people and die in their stead. A sinner could not die for a sinner and atone, be atoned. But it had to be the perfect sacrifice and that ram that was taken in there, the blood of the ram, symbolized that that ram had died in their stead. Symbolically, but that blood didn't take it away, did it? It was only reminding them <laughs> that there had to be a greater sacrifice than that to take away their sins. So they reminded that they had to have the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute to take their sins and die in their stead in order to pay their debt and to send their sins far away to a place where they would be remembered no more. When you came to the tabernacle on the day of, day of atonement, uh, the priest, high priest, had to have his bull to make atonement for his sins and the sins of the priesthood and the tabernacle and all that kind of stuff. But the people had to have their, their, <laughs> their atoning sacrifice. So they were the ones who were to buy the, to do the two goats. And you come to the, to the tabernacle and you had two goats. And I'm told that what I read is those goats were not your ordinary run of the goat, Okay. I think these were the Syrian goats, which were used as symbols of power, of uh, majesty. They were regal, as it were. And so they were the best that they could offer. And to the Jew, that Syrian goat was something that was very prized, a very prized domestic animal. And so they brought the goats. First of all, there was the sacrificial goat, which one uh, was slain, blood taken inside. And then there was another goat, Azazel. Simply means it was a scapegoat. 
So what happened on the day of Pentecost, I mean, <laughs> day of Pentecost, the day of atonement, was that uh, they would put the, the, the lots in a box, one lot for Azazel, the other for the sacrifice for God. And I understand that the pre-high priest would reach his hands in there and pull out. God was making the selection. And whatever one was, Azazel landed on one head of the goat, and the other one landed on the other head of the goat. And therefore, God had made his selection. One would be the sacrifice, the other one would be the scapegoat. Why the two? Who do these goats represent? Christ. But it took two goats to represent Jesus Christ to complete the message. And so or, or complete the process. And so what happened was when the priest went in, high priest went in and sprinkled the blood on there and made atonement for the sins of the people, that, that goat was designated as belonging to God, went in. Sprinkle the blood there. Atonement was made. Propitiation for sins was made. Then he came out. And the other goat was there, and he laid his hands on the head of the, the scapegoat. And he confessed over that goat all the sins of the people. What was he doing? Symbolically. Putting all of our sins on that goat, right? All their sins on that goat. What'd they do with the goat? They had a guy or person designated to lead him out of the wilderness. And there he was gone forever. Typifying what? God had sent away the sins, right? God had carried away through the sacks, through the scapegoat, the sins of the people. Now, what has happened when we're not dealing with shadows now? What happened with Jesus Christ? He is both the sacrificial goat and what? The scapegoat. The Lord has laid on him what? All of our iniquities on that scapegoat, hasn't he? That blood that Jesus Christ shed, he shed to atone our sins in order that we might be justified and stand right before God and have His righteousness imputed to us. And without the sacrifice, we will have no hope. We have no hope. So, I like what's said in Psalm 103, verse 12, on that scapegoat, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God done what? Removed our sins from us and I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins will I remember no more so what they needed on that day was a greater sacrifice for sin than bulls and goats and I think they probably understood that because they had to be repeated how often every year right so they need a greater sacrifice for sin than bulls and goats because the same sacrifice had to be repeated year after year. And only God, and that's the thing we need to realize, only God could provide the sacrifice. And I believe the faithful, those who had faith in God, 
You know, like David, he realized those sacrifices didn't do anything for him, right? Psalm 51. If God required that to atone his sin, you know, he would have, he would have said that. But anyway, he says, you know, the sacrifices, those things did not do it. What God was looking for was what? In him, he was looking for a broken and contrite heart. And we're going to see later that the only way that he could be justified, even though he had a broken and contrite heart, and even though he had faith in God, the only way he could be justified is through that blood. The blood of whom? Of Christ, who was slain from the very foundation of the world. And so we see that the faithful, they were looking forward to the sacrifice that the prophets had prophesied of. Read Isaiah 51, Psalm 22. And we see that God was prophesying through these prophets that a greater sacrifice, a greater one was coming that would atone our sins. And you have people like Simeon and Anna, we read in the book of Luke chapter 2, that we're looking for the day when he arrived. Anybody got any comments? Symbolically, the mercy seat was where God's plan of salvation, when I look at God's eternal redemption, was for the most part completed. Now we know, but no, it didn't, wasn't everything completed right there, but there had to be a resurrection, wasn't it? But after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was all completed. But symbolically, the mercy seat was where God's plan of salvation was brought to a climax. It was where sins were atoned, where God's justice and wrath were propitiated, where mercy was bestowed to the sinners, where sinners were redeemed, justified, sanctified, reconciled to God, and accepted into His fellowship. All those things, I think, took place there at that mercy seat. And since God's plan was concealed in types and symbols, both prophets and angels desire to know what's been revealed to you and me. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 9 says, Receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering these things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things which angels desired to look into. Things in the Old Testament, that ultimate plan that God had for, redeem for redeeming mankind, it was concealed in signs and symbols and all this kind of stuff. The prophets didn't really understand what they were prophesying. A lot of them did, did they? 
God was using them by the Holy Spirit, speaking through them messages that I'm sure they probably didn't fully understand. And as you look at the cherubim looking down on the mercy seat, they were also intrigued by what God had in plan or had planned for mankind in the atonement of our sins. So is my conclusion that the mercy seat was typical of Jesus. And what was accomplished symbolically at the mercy seat was accomplished in substance at the seat of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. I think we see that everything God had planned is summed up in one person, one sacrifice. Summed up into his son. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Let's start with that one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is in whom? In Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself according to good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved or in Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. There's that mystery. According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one, American Standard says 1901, and I used that standard for years and years till I wore the Bible out. But anyway, that's 1901, uh, uh, American Standard says he summed up all things in him or in Christ. Everything was summed up in one person. That's Jesus Christ. The whole scheme was summed up in him, right? Everything resolves around Jesus Christ. Without him, we have no hope at all. So in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, in him. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, at the mercy seat, what took place there I really believe is typical of what took place in Jesus when I look at it, I think, well, Jesus Christ has to be the seat, of a, the seat of atonement because that seat is where atonement for sins was made once for all. Atonement was made at the seat of Jesus. There's where our sins are covered, they're concealed, hidden from the face of God. I like uh, what's said in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. If then you were raised together with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, see at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things up to the earth, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So I, I just like to picture myself as being justified, being right with God, that my life is hidden. And he's referring back to Colossians chapter 2 where we were buried through baptism and 
to the death, raised up with Christ. And he said, if you've been raised with him, you also had died to him, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Well, it means to me that my sins are covered over. We're baptized into Christ. We put on whom? Christ. We're covered with Christ. God has always, always provided a covering for his people, those who have faith. We're going to be talking about that later, about we're justified by faith. That is where we come in contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. But anyway, Jesus, to me, is the seat of atonement. Jesus is the seat of justice. The seat where the demands of the law, if God's going to be just and justifying the ungodly, what has to take place? The price has to be paid, right? You going to pay the price? I want to pay the price. Well, I would have had to pay the price had Jesus Christ not paid it, right? So Jesus Christ took my sins, a scapegoat. Jesus <laughs> took my sins and carried those sins far away because he paid the price there at the mercy seat. He was that mercy seat. And so the demands of the law for justice and the wrath of God were propitiated or satisfied. In the book of... Uh, Isaiah chapter 53, I like what's said there, talking about Jesus Christ being wounded for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities, and so forth, because he made his soul an offering for sin. And then in verse 11 and 12, verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. And then in verse 11, he shall see the labor of the travail of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. What Jesus Christ did was took our sins and died in our stead. So I see God being just in justifying the ungodly because justice was served in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus also is the mercy seat the seat where sinners receive God's mercy. Without Jesus Christ, there is no mercy, right? But God bestows his mercy upon us as a result of him. He's the seat of redemption, the seat where Christ was paid to ransom sinners from the bondage of sin, and he's the seat of justification, where God justifies the ungodly and acquits them of guilt and imputes to them his righteousness where they're reckoned or counted as though they never sinned. Jesus is the seat of reconciliation, the seat where sinners make peace with God and are accepted into his fellowship. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. Colossians 1, 19, it talks about Jesus Christ being our reconciliation. Through his death, it brings out in Romans chapter 5. Let's just look at that one verse. There's so many of them that... Uh, Talk about this. I'd like to share all of them, but probably don't have time. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. He is our peace who made both one, 
broke down the middle wall of perdition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, so making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So Jesus is our peace. He's the one through whom we have peace with God. And we're reconciled to Him, and we can have fellowship with Him. Our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ, as a result of the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ. And so, He's not only the seat of of, uh, reconciliation, the seat where sinners make peace with God and accepted into His fellowship, but He's the seat of sanctification, the seat where we are set apart from sin to God. And it took that blood of Jesus Christ that was sprinkled on that mercy seat to set us apart. And Jesus is the seat of vindication. What I mean by vindication is that it's the seat where God's righteousness was vindicated for forgiving sins that were previously committed. Let's look at uh, the last part of that. Our time is about up. Let's look at that last part of that in Romans chapter verse 26 verse 25 all that was uh, he did that to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed whose sins were previously committed what about Abraham what about David what about those faithful in Hebrews chapter 11? Were they sinners? What does it mean they passed over their sins? What does a Passover mean to you? Anything? Strike a bell? Remember what happened at the Passover? Blood was slain. God had said he's going to pass over Egypt. And when he passes over Egypt, what's going to take place? All the firstborn of Egypt are going to do what? They're going to die. What was it that separated them from uh, from the Jews? Jews separated the Jews from them. Blood on the doorpost. You kill the lamb. You sprinkle that blood on the doorpost, not the little. And when God passes over, what's going to happen? going to be saved absolutely so he's talking about those sins that were previously passed over not just their sins God set them free free because of the blood not just their sins but what about the sins of Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all those faithful we read about in Hebrews 11, that was just a smidgen of the ones that God passed over their sins and did not hold them accountable for their sins because of what? Because they had the blood. Not because they were more righteous. God said to the Israelites, you're stiff-necked and uncircumcised people. You're not any more righteous than anybody else. But because of his love for them and because he provided a, a, a plan for them, and all the Gentiles as well now, we can be justified in the eyes of God. And God can be just in justifying the ungodly. 
So God's righteousness was vindicated. Proved that God was just. Demonstrated that God was just in passing over their sins done previously because one sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, I've heard people say, well, the blood flows forward, but the blood also, if you want to use that terminology, flowed backwards, didn't it? Didn't flow backwards <laughs> or forward. One time for all time, for all people, Jesus died for everybody. That's the reason he did it. In God's eyes, Jesus was slain before the foundation. Yeah. Revelation 13, verse 8. Oh, his blood took care of it all. And really, when I look at it, I, I, I see that it all took place right there in him. And he, uh, it's all there in Jesus Christ. All right. Anybody got anything you'd like to say before I close? I hope it made a, a little bit of sense. There's so much to the sacrificial system. You can't even you just touch the hem of the garment unless you really get in an in-depth study of it. I... I preached a whole series of sermons on it a few years ago, but when you get into it, it's, uh, it's amazing what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.